today, what we're going to see, Paul does something brilliant. He anticipates the argument that the Judaizers will make. And he gives a brilliant, carefully laid out counter to the argument that they're going to make. It's an argument from salvation history. Now, that's not a term we use a lot. Salvation history. Do you know, as soon as the fall occurred, back in Genesis 3, the fall occurs, and at that point, God initiated His plan to save sinful, fallen humanity. And if we don't understand the history of salvation and how God's been working, we can end up like the Judaizers. We could believe things that aren't true, that aren't what Scripture says. So Paul, today we're going to look at this very carefully laid out argument. We've got a long passage. It has a lot of history in it. But don't think just because we're dealing with some history, a little bit of theology, just because we're dealing with those things, that this doesn't apply. No, this message, this passage applies to us deeply. We have a longer passage, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, the words will be on the screen. But we're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 29. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. He begins, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it, once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, the, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For if Christ Jesus, um, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor fit free, neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we pray for Bimnet and Milat and his children. We pray that you would truly open up doors for the advancement of the good news of the gospel into hearts that are far from you, awakened to life. And Lord, today, we're reminded in your word that all men are like grass. All our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. Lord, may this be the word that is faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, nothing of any eternal significance will be spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, as I read our passage, you may have picked up on a couple of words that were repeated over and over and over again. There's two words that are actually, each of them are given eight times in this passage. And those two words are the main emphasis of what Paul is speaking of. One of those words is promise or the promise. Another of those is the law. And that's what we're looking at today. Paul is speaking in and he's asking this question. This question for us. Are we trusting in the law or are we trusting in the promise that's a question we all need to evaluate because sometimes we can get a little confused on this sometimes we may trust partially in one and partially in the other but i think what paul wants to show us is that we are to have trust in one of these now paul starts off well before we jump in there i want to give you a few word definitions just to help you out it's important when I'm going to say some words, I want to make sure we understand them well. We speak of the word justification a lot. That simply means that before God, the verdict is not guilty. You stand before God, are you guilty of sin? He's going to say not guilty. That's what justification means. We're going to see that today. When we speak of the promise today, the promise is going to speak of the inheritance that comes through faith. Now hear that, it's going to speak of the inheritance that comes through faith. When we speak of the law, we're going to speak of the Mosaic law that God gave his people in the Old Testament. Now, a word we use a lot, and we sort of assume we have a right understanding of this word, and that's faith. We speak of faith, and everybody seems to have an understanding of it. But if we're not careful, even a word as basic as faith that we hear over and over again, we can have a misunderstanding. Let me just give you an example. Let, let's all stand up one more time. Now, you've all stood up. You're standing in front of your seat. If I ask you, do you believe your seat will hold you? Everybody's going to say yes, right? Well, that's what, how a lot of people treat faith. I believe. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose again. I believe that happened. But you see, faith is more than just belief. Faith is trusting. 
You can tell me that you believe the seed will hold you. But until we do what, you're not trusting it. Until you sit down, and y'all may be seated. Until you sit down, you're not trusting that seed, are you? Now, everybody in this room, I guess with the exception of me, is trusting a seat to hold you up. That's what faith is. When we look at Scripture, it is, it is yes, correct belief, but trusting in that correct belief. Trusting in Christ, not just a belief, trusting in Him. Trusting in that promise. So when we talk about faith, we want to make sure we understand clearly. We're talking about trusting in Christ. Putting our weight into Him. Leaning into Him. Believing He can hold us. Believing we're secure with Him. Now Paul starts off, Paul is a very excellent articulate argument maker. And he's going to start off here by giving a human example. And it's a human example most of us in this room can identify with. He says when you make a covenant or an agreement, or we might use the word when you sign a contract, right? If you've ever taken a loan at the bank, what do you do? You sign it. Whenever you're doing legal paperwork, many of you have had to get passports, you sign something. We make these agreements. We sign these things. And once that signature is on there, both parties sign to it. The stamps have been put on it. It's went to all the offices it needs to go to and it's filed. Is it easy to change that? Can you just go back and say, you know what? You gave me an interest rate, but I'm not going to pay that interest rate anymore. I'm lowering my interest rate. Do you have the freedom to do that? After the contract has been signed, after the agreement's made, you don't have the, uh, the authority to do that. What we're going to see today, this is the big idea that Paul's making. If you've got your notes, I'm giving you the big idea of the message and of the passage, the main idea that Paul's given. Here's the first one. The law does not void the promise. You could use the word the law does not annul the promise. Or if you prefer to say the law does not get rid of the promise. Okay? So he's making an example. Paul starts off with a human example. You all get it. You can't just hey, we're going to do away with our previous agreement. The agreement's in place. Both people have to come back to the table. So here, he's speaking of once it's been ratified, you can't undo it. And then in verse 20, I mean in verse 16, he says, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. If you've got an NIV Bible, I like how it translates it. It says, seed. When you hear that word seed, that should bring to mind Genesis 3.15. The curse has happened. The fall has occurred. And God gives a glimmer of hope in the midst of cursing everything. God gives a glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15. When he says, a seed, a male seed is going to come and crush the head of that serpent. And ever since Genesis 3.15, we are waiting for the seed for the offspring, for the child 
to come. That's what we think about at Christmas time. The child that all the Old Testament anticipates. The seed, the offspring, the singular offspring, he has arrived. That's what they're waiting for. And here, he says Christ is that offspring. It's one, not many. He goes on to make an argument. He says in verse 17, the law came 430 years after the promise. Now, let me help you out here. We don't use these terms a lot. Here's what's going on. In the Old Testament, there are several agreements. We call them covenants. Perhaps the two of the biggest covenants, Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. There, people debate how many covenants they are, but everybody agrees these two covenants are there. These are the big ones. Abrahamic covenant. Given to Abraham 400 years before Moses receives his covenant. It's based on a promise. God tells Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Your offspring, Abraham, your singular offspring, Abraham, is going to be a blessing to all the nations. Aren't we glad that's true? We've got people in here of different nations. Aren't you, aren't you glad that the offspring of Abraham, the coming Messiah, is a blessing to us all? Well, in Genesis 3.15, I mean, in Genesis 15.6, it's perhaps the clearest verse for understanding Old Testament salvation. It says, Abraham believed, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, a few weeks ago, I mentioned using a credit card. A lot of people here don't use credit cards. That's okay. Probably best not to be using them. Credit card, you give the person your card, you receive the goods right now, but you don't pay for them till later. That's a picture of Old Testament salvation. The people in the Old Testament were re redeemed through credit based on the promise of God. God made a promise. They had faith in the promise. That's what redeemed them. But the bill hadn't come due. It wasn't paid yet. Who paid their bill? The seed, the offspring, the child, coming Messiah. Jesus comes and he pays the bill in full for all the Old Testament saints. Now, we are saved based on debit. Most of you here use debit cards. That means you give the person your card and the money is taken out. The money's there. It's already there. You don't have to pay later. You pay right now. We're saved. Your sin debt has already been paid. What we, how we activate it is by faith, trusting in Christ. So in the Old Testament, he's speaking of this covenant that God made with Abraham. Right after God said, Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God and he was credited as righteousness. There's a covenant ceremony. Now this covenant ceremony is very unusual for us. What they would do in the Old Testament or in the ancient world, to make an agreement, you would take a goat, you would take a sheep, and you would take a cow, heifer. You would cut all of them in half, 
you'd put the front end on this side, the back end on this side, and the parties would walk between the animals, saying, if either one of us break this agreement, this is what's going to happen to us. So it's a pretty serious agreement, a pretty serious covenant. You're signing saying, if I break this, I deserve to be slaughtered like these animals. Now, an unusual thing happens with Abraham in Genesis 3.15. I mean, Genesis 15, chapter 15. He goes to sleep. He doesn't walk between the animals. God passes between the animals as a torch. He goes there. And what is that saying? When God passes through the animals, here's what it's telling us. This is a one-way covenant. Imagine if you went to the bank. You said, I want to take out a loan. And they said, sure, here's the loan. But you don't need to sign anything. We'll sign everything. We'll agree that you can take this money and use it as you see fit. We'll make that agreement, but you have no obligation on your end. You never have to pay it back. There's no agreement on your part. That's what God does in the Abrahamic covenant. God does it all. God says, I will keep this promise no matter what you do. It's impossible to break the covenant because you haven't agreed to it. God is going to keep it regardless of us. Now the Mosaic covenant, 430 years later, the Mosaic covenant operates this way. If you do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, this will happen. It's a two-way agreement between God and man. Consequences to the actions, to the things that happen. Abrahamic covenant's not like that. So the big idea that Paul is saying again is the law, which is the Mosaic covenant, when we say the law, we're speaking of the Mosaic covenant, does not get rid of the promise. And the promise comes from the Abrahamic covenant that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about uh, the promise here in verse 18, it says, For an inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by the promise. Now, when we speak of inheritance, when do you get an inheritance? In most cultures, definitely the culture I come from, when, when, a parent, when parents die, they leave an inheritance to their children. Now, if that inheritance is based on this, you have to do these things, it's not really an inheritance. It doesn't meet the definition. By definition, an inheritance is this. You're my child, you receive this blessing. That's all you have to do is be my child and you receive it. He's saying if the inheritance came by the law, and remember the law is if you do this, this will happen. So the uh, Mosaic covenant, I mean Abrahamic covenant is I will. God saying I'm going to do this. Mosaic covenant is thou shall do this, you do this. If the inheritance is based on what you do and based on the law, it's no longer an inheritance. It's not based on the promise. That's the argument he's making. Now, here's where I've seen people struggle. I've struggled with this. Different people, it's, it's not unusual to struggle with this. Some of you may still struggle with it. That's okay. 
If you don't struggle with this, I guarantee you, you're going to go and sit across from somebody at the office, a neighbor, somebody who struggles with what do we do with the law? What's the law about? Look at what he says. And he's going to ask two questions and give two answers to help us understand the law. We're going to see, in your bulletin, we're going to see three realities about the law, three realities about the promise. First one, verse 19. Why then the law? If the inheritance comes through the promise, what's the law for? He answers, it's added because of transgression. The law is added because you're a sinner. You see, when we see the law, we don't look and go, I'm great. I, I keep it perfectly. You're meant to look at the law and go, woe is me. I am a sinner. The law reveals to you, you're sinful. The law reveals to you some terrible news. You have rebelled against a holy God. That's what the law tells us. So he answers his own question. And he says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. That's why the law was put in place. To show you are a sinner. And when you see you're a sinner, that's terrible news. And Because what is the wages of sin? Romans 6.23, it's death. Spiritual, eternal death. That's what the wages of sin is. That's how you pay for your sin. If you pay for it on your, uh, by yourself, it's eternal death. But here, he says, there's offspring coming. Us seeing our sin lets us know we need a Savior. If you don't know you're sinful, you don't think you need a Savior. It's because we have sin that we need a Savior. So the law reveals sin. Second thing, second question here. He says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. I think a lot of people misunderstand this. It says here, The law, second point, under the law, the law does not give life. The law shows you that you're a sinner who deserves death. The law was never intended to give life. It can't save you. You see, that's where a lot of people misunderstand their Old Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping the law. In the New Testament, were saved by Jesus. No, everyone's saved by Jesus. From Adam all the way to the saints who are saved today, everybody's saved by Jesus Christ. Old Testament credit, believing the promise that the offspring's coming, having your hope that God would come to save the day. In the New Testament, it's been paid. It's already done. We just trust in Him. Reading on down in verse 23, listen to what he says. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until faith should be revealed. Third thing about the law. The law guards against sin. The law is a guardian. Now we use that phrase in English to speak of someone who may be looking after children. Some translations will translate this like a schoolmaster or a teacher. 
What's a teacher do? Some of you are teachers here. When you have really little children, if you're teaching two-year-olds, don't run in the street. The car will hit you. We're instructing children until the point that they can walk on their own, till they can own these things. We raise them up in this. And that's what the law was. The law was given to a spiritual infant nation of Israel to raise them up, to raise up God's people to maturity until Christ came. So the law, it guarded. Here's how it guarded. Sin wants to destroy you. Sin doesn't just want to deceive you. It wants to destroy your life. And the law was given as a good school teacher to say, don't let sin destroy you. Watch out for these things. Protect against these things. But the law doesn't save. Do you see the difference? The law is a guardian. It will protect you against sin. The full implications of sin here on earth. But it can't save you from sin. It can't wash you clean, clean of sin. It can't do away with sin. Now the law shows us that we're a sinner. It's not intended to give life. And yet it's part of God's goodness to say sin is destroying my people. Here's a law to keep you. Follow this and sin will not destroy you as much. It's God's good grace that He gives us that. Now, three things about the promise. Now, when we speak of the promise, here's the first thing in verse 22 and verse 26. Let's see 26. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. How do you become a son of God? Through faith. Faith is what makes us the Son of God. So the first thing about the promise, the promise justifies, means makes you right before God, by faith in Christ. Be careful with this. Some people, I, I was even talking with somebody this week, they said, you know, Jesus would say your faith has healed you, your faith has done this. Our, the important thing about faith is not that you just have faith in anything. It's the object of your faith. Okay? You all have faith in the chairs you're sitting in right now, but that chair can't save you. The object of our faith has to be Christ. So let's don't miss that. There's people who can have a wrong object of their faith. They're trusting in something other than Christ. So here, the promise was meant to point us to Jesus. To show us Him. Now, I've talked to some people that struggle. And hey, I've been here. At times, I still may, you know, see the, the lines be difficult. Hey, if, if we're saved by faith alone, are you saying works don't matter? I mean, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, whatever you do, for the least of these you've done unto me, that's a work. James says, faith without works is dead. So are you like saying works don't matter at all and, and it's only faith? For salvation, absolutely. Faith alone in Christ saves. It's not like 
You get 95% of the way there by faith and your works are the last 5% to help you get across the line. Works bring nothing to salvation. That's what Paul's writing. Our works bring nothing to salvation. So are works not important at all? No, I don't think so. I think works, we have to properly understand them. When you read Scripture, you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So Paul says, faith without works is dead. He doesn't, I mean, James does. He doesn't say, works save you. If you have faith, there will be signs of life. If you have faith, there will be some form of works that flow out of your life. But the works don't save you. The works in some ways show that you have been redeemed. So we're not saying works are not important. No, I think that would be contrary to Scripture. The argument is works add nothing to salvation. All they do is show that a person who has salvation is redeemed. There can be unredeemed people that have works. There can be unredeemed people who preach the gospel. No, it's Christ alone that saves, not our works. And that's a hard one for, for many to, to grasp because our flesh always wants to add. Hey, I believe in Jesus, but Jesus didn't pay for it all. Surely I've got to do something. No, you don't have to do anything for salvation except sit down. Put your trust and your weight in the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. Trust that. You don't have to do anything. But once you've done that, once you've put your trust in Jesus, there will be evidence of life. Some of those we call works that flow out. And if you're here today and you're saying, amen, I got it, I understand it, praise the Lord. Because I guarantee you, you're going to be with some people this week who don't understand this very clearly. They want to put works back into salvation somehow. No, Christ alone saves us. Works have importance, but not in terms of salvation. Reading on down in verse 27. So the first thing about the promise, the promise justifies by faith in Christ. In verse um, 28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Second thing we see is the promise makes us all one in Christ. Second point in your bulletin, the promise. Second point under the promise in your bulletin. The promise makes us one in Christ. Now, one of the things I love about our church, we come from different nations, different seasons of life, different ages. We have a oneness in Christ. Now, some have misinterpreted this verse to say Paul is saying, it doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. It doesn't matter if you're a Greek or a Gentile, a Jew or... Greek or Gentile, none of these things matter at all. He's not saying that. He's talking about the promise. When it comes to standing before God and saying, hey, I'm justified based on Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. We're all saved the same way by Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're from the U.S., from Ethiopia, from Kenya, from Europe, from Australia. It doesn't matter where you're from. You don't stand before God and go, hey, I'm I'm an American and I'm a Christian. God's going to say, that doesn't matter. Who do you trust? Trust in Jesus. When it comes to salvation, none of those matter. Now, living here on earth, we recognize one of the things I love about life here. We have a lot of cultures here at our church. And I recognize I offend people sometimes. I don't mean to offend you, but I know I do. Why? Because the way my culture operates and the way maybe your culture operates are exact opposite. So I'll be polite and you'll think it's rude. Or you'll be polite and I'll think it's rude. So we give a great deal of grace. So he's not saying those things don't matter in living on life. He's not saying that men and women are the same. That's what the craziness in my culture wants to say. No. I mean, it's basic. Reality is, is I can't give birth to a child. Never could, never will. Men and women are different. And that's a glorious thing. God created that. That's beautiful. So he's not doing away with these things. He's saying when it comes to salvation, to fulfillment of the promise, those don't matter. But when we live here on earth, the fact that I'm from the United States, that shapes the way I view a lot of things. A lot of things for good, a lot of things for bad. Same with all of our cultures. So he's not saying that that doesn't matter. He's just saying in terms of salvation. It it doesn't matter. It's not Christ. Remember, he's writing to these people who say, listen, you believe, Paul preached Jesus and you believed in Jesus, but guess what? You've got to be circumcised. You've got to be Jewish. It's not Christ plus your ethnic identity. It's not Christ plus your national identity. It's not Christ plus your language. It's not Christ plus your tribe. No, it's Christ alone. We all step up the same way. Christ is all of our only hopes. I was recently reading a missionary biography about a man who, uh, he went to the seminary I went to many years before um, I was there. And he was, he fought in World War II. And he was a part of one of the most famous battles, raids in World War II, but his plane was shot down and he was captured by the enemy. For three and a half years, he was tortured, starved, watched his friends die at the hands of the enemy as a prisoner of war. When he crashed, Though his parents, he'd been raised in a Christian home, he was not a believer. Yet during that three and a half years in prison, a Bible was given to the prisoners. And these prisoners, all in cages, they would take turns with the Bible. Each of them got three weeks with it. This man's name was Jacob DeShazer. He read the Bible five times completely through in three weeks. He had nothing else to do. Just sat there and read the Bible over and over again. The Word of God speaking truth to him, and God redeemed him, converted him. He placed his faith in Jesus. After three and a half years of captivity, the war ended. He returned to his home, a national hero. Yet he made a bold declaration. He said, I'm going back. 
I'm going back to the people that tortured me. I'm going back to that nation that were the darkest days of my life, and I'm going there because they need the Savior, Jesus Christ. And for the next 30 years of his life, he started churches, he preached the gospel, he started seminaries, he laid his life down for the glory of God. Why? Because when we stand before God, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no male or female, it's all are on level footing. What's your verdict? Guilty of sin. I only have one hope. He's innocent. He's innocent. I trust Him. You see, He knew this. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Most of us go, okay, I'm going to try to love my neighbor. You know, Jesus says, love your enemy. Love your enemy. Are you at odds with somebody else here today, maybe? Is there a circumstance in your life that's, that's difficult? Jesus says, hey, if you can't view them as a neighbor, you can at least view them as an enemy. And Jesus says to love them. There's times that we forgive people when they don't even ask for it. The nation that tortured him, they never came to him and said, will you forgive us? We're sorry we did that. Our bad. They never did that. He forgave them because of the gospel and went back and proclaimed the gospel to them. That's what the promise does. The law does not do that. The law does not have the power to do that. The law simply shows you you're a sinner in need of a Savior and guards you from sin becoming full-blown in your life. No, it's the promise of the offspring, Jesus Christ coming, that transforms your life. That's what you place your faith in and your trust in. Last verse we have today, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Final point. The promise makes us heirs. Makes us heirs. I talked about this earlier. An heir is a child who receives an inheritance, right? The child receives the inheritance of the parents. Scripture speaks of God as creator of all. Scripture speaks of God as king over all. It does not speak of God as father of all. In fact, Scripture says you are children of the enemy. You're born children of wrath. That's not meant to make us feel good. I don't like saying it. The Bible teaches that. No. We're adopted in. And we're going to get into this. We've talked about adoption some, but this is a big theme in this book. We're adopted in to the family of God. If you call God your father, it's only because he's adopted you. We're adopted through his son who paid your adoption price. He's the one who paid your ransom. He's the one who set you free. He's the one who came and did that. In the world Jesus lived in, if a biological child rebelled, the parent could literally go before the elders and say, I'm disowning this child. 
and that child would no longer be theirs. But if you adopted a child, if you brought a child in and said, you're going to be my own, you can never disown that child. They were yours for life. That's what God does for us. He brings us in, pays the price for us through his son, and makes us his own for life. The promise is secure. We can rest in the promise. We can trust in the promise. And that's the question for us. What's our hope in? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting the promise? Or are you trusting the law? Maybe you're trusting part of the promise, but you're wanting to insert some of the law in there and be like, okay, you've really got to keep this in order to be saved. We trust in Christ's sufficiency alone. He's enough. Church, I pray that we be people that are set free by the glorious, beautiful gospel that Christ is enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I confess I never do a anywhere near a perfect job of speaking your word or preaching your word. So Lord, we trust your word to work today. We trust your word to convict hearts and minds and lives. Not the words of any pastor, but the words that come true from you. Lord, there's some here today. Maybe they're struggling with some of these things. Maybe they're looking going, I I've really trusted the law a lot. I've trusted in works. I've trusted in identity. I haven't placed my full weight in trusting Jesus. I haven't fully sat in the chair and said, this is all there is. Christ alone. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to your sufficiency. And Lord, many here today, they are amening this, saying, yes, Christ is sufficient. He's enough. He's the only hope I have. But Lord, there's people around us. They may be religious. They may pray. They may show up at buildings. But Lord, they're not trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. They're trusting in what they do. Oh Lord, that's a cruel master. That's living in slavery. Set them free by the beauty of the gospel. And if you would use any in this room to set those free, we pray that you would do that through the power of your good, holy, and perfect word. Give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.